1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: People of attention. Calling to city. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. and i
2: building rockets. I'm them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody welcome, hello, and welcome to Show 513. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Did you notice the, that's last week got me show numbers mixed up? Yes. <laughs> so we're on 513 this week. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction, Spare Parts, by Sean Mansouri, narrated by Ant Bacon. Then we have, it's the end of the month, and we have Mr. JJ Campanella. And Jim is on fire with his science news this week, this month. So that is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up is the main fiction, Spare Parts, like I say, by Sean Mansuri. Originally published in Low L1F3 Anthology. Whatever whatever that is. <laughs> Sean is a former biologist and fan of the darker side of fiction. When he's not twitching from too much caffeine or arguing with the post office about smash books and magazines in his mailbox. He reads slush for a grimdark magazine and blogs occasionally at Carved in Sand, fiction from the ether where he rants about writing victories and defeats. You can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean Mansouri. And like I say, this story is narrated by Mr. Ant Began. Ant is an actor and voice artist based in Manchester and London in the UK. When he's not acting, he's usually found in the kitchen or in the gym. He is currently appearing in the play Avoidance in the Greater Manchester Fringe Festival on at the King's Arms in Salford and Oldham Library Theatre. In August, he will be appearing in Diana and I on the BBC, where he shares a scene with the phenomenal Tansman Greg. So, the Starship Suva is very proud to present...
3: Spare Parts by S. H. Mansouri Lucas Null wasn't always a machine. He used to dream of playing first base for the Andromeda Comets. A knee injury in college ended that dream, but Lucas hung onto his knee. It was a constant reminder of what he used to be, even if what he used to be was as far away in his long-term memory banks as a trip back to Earth. The causeway to Villanova buzzed with afterburn in the distant starlit sky. Black and white fumes, punctuated puffs, and long streamers from drone engines and freighters filled the void of cold, empty space as Lucas sipped the last of his green tea. He flipped his wrist and glanced at the embedded display again. "'Waiting for someone?' said the bartender. He pitched his head sideways, moulded his face into an air filter, sucked and exhaled violently. Lucas swallowed hard and stared at the traffic that blurred by. "'A package?' Lucas leered and tossed his skim keycard onto the bar. "'Since when are you so concerned with my business, Vod?' "'Just swipe my card and keep it pushing I'm on the clock.' Vod swiped the card beneath the scanner and picked up a warm rag to erase the condensation ring left behind on the counter. You know, this is the fifth time you've been in here this week. And every time it's the same. You practically sip my tea out of stock, check your wrist a couple of hundred times, usually, and I'm not saying always, just usually, a small drone drops a little gift from the sky for you. Am I right? Lucas grinned, a grill full of metal teeth. Then why'd you ask? Nosey, bored, I don't know. I guess I still have hope for you. There's a spot behind the bar if you ever need one. Honest work. Vod flicked a gnarled finger, and the final inning of the Comets game blared out. Another shutout from the boys from Andromeda. Honest work, Lucas thought. The Docker had recruited him right after graduation. An undergraduate degree in bioengineering would normally have meant that Lucas would be stuck in some subpar laboratory washing glassware and culturing foreskin fibroblasts for 100 credits a week. But his sense of self-worth kept him searching beyond the horizon to better places where his skills as a would-be athlete would better serve the galaxy. That's when he ran into Seymour, or Seymour's Voice. Lucas palmed the pristine counter and pushed off. Most of VOD's customers were only passing through on their way to the nebula system, a waypoint to the more hospitable colonies that the suits back on Earth had settled. Lucas was the only local, as folks on their way to Villanova rarely returned for a refill of green tea. Rarely returned at all. A dented blue drone bumped against Lucas's shoulder guard, fizzed about for a second or two and hovered steadily. Its eye opened and blared a sharp beam of green. Unable to stabilise subject for retinal scan. Please stabilise. Lucas faced the eye. He stiffened, pushed the flat back into his suit and opened it up. The green beam, a thin line across his plated forehead, ran down the bridge of his busted nose and paused. Unable to identify, please refresh. VOD chuckled behind the bar. <laughs> See those peepers now. <laughs> Both of them. Son of a bitch. It knows I've only got one good eye. It does this every time, Lucas grunted. Requesting fingerprint. He held up a half gloved hand and spread his fingers wide. Four metal spikes fanned with a fleshy index finger for trigger sensitivity. The drone scanned again. Unable to identify. Requesting dental scan. Negative. ain't got my teeth anymore, Seymour. Quit yanking my chain. Requesting cavity search. Bod crumbled in laughter, disappearing behind the bar counter. Lucas pulled his pistol and shoved the barrel into the drone's eye. Remember me now? The drone hummed. Its eye flashed yellow, then green again. Identity confirmed. You have a package, Lucas. A slot on the drone's belly opened and fed a chrome case to Lucas. He pulled it out, titanium fingers clutching, then twanged the side of the drone with his piece. Now piss off. Vod eyed the case as Lucas approached the bar. Water, smokes. Monkey grease, said Lucas, as he reached for his skim card again. Vod slid a small field pack onto the counter It's on the house today You know, you keep piling on the mods and sooner or later you're going to look just like that drone Impossible, said Lucas He grabbed the pack and slung it over his shoulder Ain't enough mods in the galaxy to turn this heart of gold to stone He parted his grey duster down the middle and a tangle of implants, LEDs, hyperdrives and overdrives shined in the lithium glow of Vod's Villanova bar. His heart thumped behind a clear carbon lattice. Lucas strode up the causeway. That spot behind the bar. Does it come with a life insurance policy? He echoed back. For you? Hell no. All the tea you can drink, though. Lucas sucked on the inside of his mouth, pulling as much saliva as he could into a single point on his tongue. His spit hit the centre of the chrome case and slowly dissolved, more like seeped in. A plasma torch sat panting on the table next to the case. he would have to open it by force if his DNA, his true DNA, wasn't present enough for a calibrated read. Amplify, come on! he whispered under his breath. The PCR indicator lit up, and the case popped open. Inside was a clear data pad embedded with docket circuitry. Seymour's voice, an androgynous puff of smoke, echoed in the outpost stall that Lucas now occupied. This could be your last run, Lucas. We've spotted a part for you in the Mesutera district. You mean the scrapyard, Lucas shot back, It's not scrap. Not this one. Fully modulated, top-of-the-line docket prototype with enzyme regulators. We need it back. What's the shelf life? Fifty years. Lucas tucked his hand inside his duster, feeling the slow rhythm of damaged goods in flux. Aside from his busted nose, his member... A couple of fingers and a kneecap ground up whatever cartilage was left with every step. He was all mods. Pieces of marks he dismantled and recoupled to keep his broken body pushing. It was all fair game to him. He didn't see himself as a butcher, trimming the fat off the waning side of humanity. He wasn't interested in organics. Organics were his problem. Do you want it or not? droned Seymour. Who's it belong to? Does that really matter, Lucas? I heard you're in a tough spot. Tick-tock. He'd have smashed the data pad had it been any other contractor. But Seymour's leads kept him alive. The docket respected Seymour, trusted him to weed out the fully cybernetic rejects that could no longer be identified. If he cut the cord with Seymour... He'd be just another mark, another blip on the docket's radar used for spare parts. He'd met Seymour on career day. He'd met Seymour on career day. The public relations relay monitor bleeped as he walked past the docket kiosk at the university wearing that old sweaty jersey. It wasn't called Docket back then, of course. CE, Cybernetic Explorations, hadn't taken a single resume or CV that day. If it wasn't for the pamphlets neatly stacked on the edge of the plastic table, no one would have known that C.E. even existed. ''Lucas Null,'' whispered the PRR Monitor. ''You're a Comets fan, how perfect!'' ''Would you like to see what a real comet looks like?'' said Seymour. And the rest was history. ''Put me in for it.'' ''Do you have a face?'' said Lucas.'' The datapad cleared, coordinates uploaded, housing visuals materialised, the face of Garrett Owen frowned, an unappraising box zooming in on his chest. Are you sure you're up for it? said Seymour. Lucas slammed his pistol on the table. I said, put me in. Good. The datapad shattered. Silicon shards scuttling across the table. Damn you, Garrett. Lucas Null called an outpost official. You're up for physical. This is going to take a while, sighed Lucas. After 45 minutes, his physical scan was complete. The Medex 205 software was state-of-the-art, referencing and cross-referencing parts and mods for more than half the galaxy. His hand pinged the system, a clutch-crushed 6 model he'd taken from a metal moulder in the Serpentine system. His eye pinged, an all-weather recon model with infrared capabilities and multi-targeting systems. He'd plucked the eye from a rogue docket sniper set on punching .50 calibre holes into security drones. The game of cat and mouse had lasted a week and cost the docket a dozen shield generators before Lucas found his mark and took the spare part. The list went on and on. Gigabytes of information, serial numbers stamping out a trail of all the parts Lucas had claimed over the years. His heart pinged the system also. Dr Chagas pulled him aside. Well, I have to say I've never seen this many mods on one person before. You shit Grace too? Dr Chagas had the bedside manner of a freighter monkey, mechanics and subpar engineers that went through spare parts like plasma rounds through tin cans. Regular garden variety. We're done here. Yeah, just uh, one thing, Lucas. Your heart. It's fine. It's not fine. It's going to give out on you any time now. Why don't you head back to Earth? The dockets allow for sensitive sick leave. I'm sure that will give you enough time to find a match. Lucas straightened out his duster and opened his locker. I'm not on the docket's payroll anymore. I'm freelancing now. Just need this one last part. You mean a heart? Lucas strapped a line of EMP grenades across his chest, grabbing a long-range thermal rifle, and walked to the outpost exit. He lit one of VOD's apricot smoke sticks and inhaled deeply. To the scrapyard. He spoke into the comm device on his skim card. He turned to Dr. Chagas. Reap the wind, Doc. Hope I never see this outpost again. Me too, Mr. Null. Dr. Chagas smiled impishly. Cybernetic explorations hired Lucas as an experimental procurer of parts. They built cybernetic modifications to make space exploration more tolerable for the frailty of the human frame. But, as time went on, CE slowly became the docket and their parts became military-grade weapons to enforce dominance of Earth's colonies. Civilians, academics, tinkerers and criminals got hold of the docket's parts, and the separation between humanity and fully cybernetic became a stark reality. Forty years after he was hired, Lucas Null was the last lost parts repo man on the planet. Lucas slid into his skim, an old, single-seat Predator model from his days on the docket payroll. The engine started silently, and debris kicked up a pitter-patter jig on the underside of the skim frame. Acid rain clouds loomed above Villanova in the distance, as Lucas Null punched in coordinates to Mesa Terra. Seething rain was the least of Lucas's concerns. The skim wasn't equipped with a stealth device, and the docket had left him with less than a quarter tank of petrol. His radar system blipped a steady stream of pale blue dots, part-exchange caravans, that waved to him as he glided over them. Sharp mountain ridges converged on both sides of the skim as the spectrum of neon lights, refinery fires and LED billboards ate away at the encroaching darkness of the neutral zone. A glob of red dots burned bright across the radar. Perhaps the caravans were warning him, waving him back to the outpost station he vowed never to see again. Crossfire blurred the approach to the landing port as Lucas weaved his skim through melting cargo crates and barricades lined up to keep the fray localised. He slid through a slender alleyway and hovered the echo of spent rounds drowning out the threat indicator on the Predator's radar system. He set the skim down and slunk around the edge of a skyscraper. Mesoterror locals, mercenaries, shopkeepers and peacekeepers swarmed the intersection of the street. Intermittent fire came from the window of a tech firm building facing the crowd. The blowback of a rocket cut the momentary silence and the tech building went up in a cloud of fire and debris. When the smoke cleared, drones poured into the building to retrieve the remains. The docket and its associates were not welcome in mesoterra and Lucas knew it. It was the last remnant of organic purity, untouched by corporate enterprise or modification of living parts. Like Lucas, the people of Mesoterra collected spare parts, but they didn't sell them or couple them. They melted them, like burning up draft cards or bras. This was organic freedom at its apex, and Lucas Null was rock bottom. The Mod Free movement, radicals bent on ridding Villanova of all the docket's adulterated human modifications, began in Misaterra. It was a city struggling to separate itself from the need to push exploration beyond its own borders. The scrapyard, as the locals called it, was mod-free central, a 20-square-mile salvage yard used to melt and break down anything or anyone that was modified. The skim was a dead giveaway. Only docket puppets used the predator. So Lucas left the skim behind and walked into the shadows of the valley, hoping the mod wouldn't notice him. He found an unoccupied room in a building across from Inferno Co. Salvage and set up. He greased his parts, counted clips, downed a quart of VOD's filtered water and swivelled the barrel of his rifle to meet Garrett Owen the minute his shift at the salvage yard was over. He waited for his old friend. The double doors of Inferno Co-Salvage opened and closed two dozen times. No Garrett Owen. The shift changed twice and still no Garrett Owen. Had someone tipped him off? Had they found the skim? The streets were silent. Security at a minimum. A lone peacekeeper, armed with a cattle prod, shuffled around the perimeter. Lucas couldn't risk another mob scene like the one he'd arrived to. He propped his rifle up against the wall and pulled out a data pad. Owen lived two buildings down, northern sector, third floor. He strapped on the rifle and made his way downstairs. Mesa Terra kept the old ways of Earth. Nobody scans, doors with knobs in lieu of biometrics, flesh and bone rather than steel and fibre optics. It was somewhat safe to walk around without pinging some system perimeter or security measure, Still, Lucas buttoned up, gloved up, and donned a pair of black smelting glasses to hide his spare parts. Over the decades, the people of Misaterra had become accustomed to spotting modifications, and Lucas Null stuck up like a sore thumb. Salvage yard, said the building clerk. Lucas paused mid-gate between the lobby of Owen's building and the staircase. Huh? Inferno! Salvage yard, up the road. You work there? Figured with the glasses and all. Yeah, just uh, finished my shift. Lucas palmed his pistol grip, flesh prepped to squeeze. Owen works there too. You know Owen? Just on my way up to see him. 373, third floor. Right? The clerk's steely facade faded. Yeah. That's the guy. Careful, he's uh got some kind of illness. Been up there all week. Mechanophage, probably. Mod Free still sticking it to the docket? Lucas smiled. No worries, I'm vaccinated. He slowly walked to the staircase. Hey what's the rifle for? The clerk lowered his hands beneath the countertop. Shit. Been uh, crazy out there. Just bagged another mod junkie. You can never be too careful, Lucas said. The clerk's eyes narrowed as he nodded hesitantly in agreement. Lucas wrenched the doorknob until it broke, swung the door open and found Garrett snuggled comfortably in bed. Get up, Garrett. Lucas pointed his pistol at the lump of flesh shifting beneath grease-stained sheets. (laughs) Who's there? Garrett hopped behind a guttural cough. Lucas tossed his shades onto the floor. His red eye flashed, honing in. Target identified. Garrett gawked and wiped mucus from his eyes. That you, Lucas? The phone rang. Garrett shifted. Don't move another inch. Let it ring. Lucas ordered. Threat identified. Lucas's eye internals split. A red box locked onto the bedside dresser. Don't even think about it, Garrett. Garrett lifted his arms. Here for the heart, aren't you? Lucas nodded. It's going to be messy. Lucas looked down at the tangle of black hair on his chest. What happened to you, Lucas? Is a single lifetime, not enough for you. You've got to take mine too. It wasn't yours to begin with. Oh, right. It's the docket's heart. You think they're going to let you have it? Don't be naive, Lucas. You're the naive one, Garrett. Look at you. All holed up out here in Shangri-La. You don't belong here. These folks find out you're running on a mod a docket mod and they'll toss you in the burner just the same Tinder for humanity I'm taking it Garrett close your eyes Garrett closed his eyes and smiled it's not good anymore Lucas the guys at the salvage yard must have found out I was ex-docket put it in my coffee or something Lucas wavered. "'Put what in your coffee?' "'Virus. "'They stuff it into a mechanophage, "'and it works its way into every fibre of your body. "'Doesn't bother you if you're pure, mod-free. "'But me? "'Well, we both know I'm anything but pure.' (laughs) "'You're lying,' said Lucas. "'Only one way to find out, old friend.' We're not friends, Garrett. I taught you everything you know about parts. You went off the radar. You didn't even let me know. (laughs) Why would I? So you could hunt me down, take me apart and send the pieces back to Earth? You kept most of the parts, didn't you? Jesus, Lucas. You're one step away from slipping off the radar too. Now, who's the liar? We were going to be comets, remember? CE was just a temporary gig to get us on our feet. Don't patronise me. You don't know the first thing about what happened to me, Garrett. They used you up. Every repo broke you down. Kept the parts coming. only Natural. They last a hell of a lot longer than what we're born with. You're still holding on to that knee. I bet you are. No matter how many pieces you replace, you're still stuck with the memories of a man. You done, said Lucas. Over the hill, burnout. You're nothing but a puppet. Thunk. The side of Garrett's head sizzled. A single hair curled up around a small oozing hole. He slumped over. Lucas holstered his pistol and pulled his pack off his shoulder. He yanked Garrett out of the bed and onto the floor into the middle of the dank room. His Dremel tool affixed with a six-inch graphite wheel whirled. The phone continued to ring. Clerk's going to be here soon. Carving out a square of bone and sinew and flesh, the docket prototype's coupling tubes became visible, amidst the organic mess. Lucas wondered if Dr Chargers would do a better job. Insert some sanctity into the situation, a prayer, perhaps. He detached the heart and carefully placed it in a case, then tucked the case inside his field pack and headed down the stairs. Threat identified. (sighs) Hey, mister, called the clerk as Lucas made his way to the exit. I'm talking to you. Lucas spun round and pulled his piece. Don't do it. The clerk reached behind the counter. Thunk, thunk. The clerk dropped cold. Lucas exited the building. Halfway to the skim, Lucas's heart began to throb. His motion slowed, mods, implants and reconstructions halting to a hum from lack of cardiac output. He stumbled to the wall gripping his field pack with what strength he could muster. The skin was just 30 yards away, his eye blurred, the focus box darting to and fro, from dumpster to a tomcat. Threat identified. This is your skim, he heard a voice echo. Don't tow it. Be right there. Just a... just a sec. The EMP grenade landed two feet in front of him. Visuals shot to hell. Lucas seized in a storm of short circuits and fried hardware. He fell to the ground, paralysed. The sound of EKG spikes and power tools spinning woke Lucas from his slumber. His torso, an iron barrel embedded with circuitry and microchips, was strapped down to an examination table. His headrest slowly raised a misa mercenary holding the bed control box in her hand. The other mercenary, the one who'd tossed an EMP grenade at his feet, pushed a drill into Lucas's shoulder. The last bolt popped, and his arm fell into the sterile white flooring on the outpost station. Dr. Chargas sat in the rolling swivel chair and brought up his comm screen. Seymour billowed. It's probably in his field pack. It was, actually. I have it right here, said Dr. Chargas, holding out the docket heart for the screen cam. What do you want me to do with the left leg? The merc popped the last clamp on Lucas's leg and caught it round the ankle. Bag it up and take it with you. Inferno, right, said Dr. Chargas. The merc grinned. You some cold-blooded bastards out here. The eye is mine. "'said the woman, holding the bed control box. "'Just a souvenir.' "'She jammed a rivet into Lucas's eye socket "'and pried up like she was uncorking a bottle of champagne. "'Lucas couldn't move. "'His head slammed down into the cushion from the pressure. "'Then relief, as the murk plucked his eye from its socket. "'He opened his mouth and pursed the words, but no sound. "'Not the knee,' he thought. "'He's up!' Said the Merc, stuffing the metal leg into the truck of the skim, Dr. Chargus waved him away, so how much are we talking here? Two hundred k credits purred Seymour, two fifty k I can get half of that from the spare parts alone, said Dr Chargus. very well, Lucas are you there, buddy said Seymour. Lucas strained, but still no sound. He can't talk any more. Voice box is already removed Go ahead and say your goodbyes He can still hear you Dr. Chagas swivelled around and faced Lucas Seymour purred again Don't say I didn't warn you, Lucas I said it would be your last run But the heart... Well, that belongs to us We put the heart in you and you slide right off the radar, fully cybernetic. We can't have another rogue docket retiree running around the galaxy. Lucas's cheek twitched. We're ready, yelled the mercenaries in unison. Taking the skim too. Call it a retrieval fee. They started the skim, with parts from Lucas Null jammed into the trunk. Poor bastard, said the driver. As they punched the skim into the darkness. Adieu, old friend, said Seymour, and the screen went offline. Dot Chagas rolled an overhead mirror to the side of the examination table. The sound of EKG spikes waned a soft, intermittent gasp for air. Have a look. One eye, a simple working prosthetic with threat indicators, looked up. At the overhead mirror. If Lucas's mouth was wired, if his voice box was intact, he would have screamed. His torso was a shell, iron ribs curled around a slow pulsing heart. No limbs, no skull cap, no structure to hold his facial features up, no hair, no teeth, no odour, even. There wasn't enough organic matter to even tell the excavated torso, ramrod neck and hollow head had once carried life in it. Lucas wondered what a heart attack would feel like. He couldn't feel anything. Just thoughts and images. Random synaptic firing. Gara Owen, sick in bed. Vod's Villanova bar, where the tea was always piping hot. Seymour's sickening voice, the clerk behind the counter, first base for the Andromeda Comets, the mechanophage coursing through Garrett Owen's heart, all rushing towards him in a microscopic cloud. "'Reap the wind, right, Lucas?' taunted Dr Chagas as he slid across the room to the examination table. "'Told you I was going to give out on you any time. "'I think I'll just speed up the process.' He wrapped his fingers around a bundle of cords, ventilation machines, IVs, and vitals regulators. He held the docket prototype in his hand. Lucas's eye registered. It swivelled and locked onto the heart. Threat identified. Decontamination required. Garrett wasn't bluffing. It's infected. If Lucas Null could smile. He would.
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is. Sean, Sean, thank you so much. I think we'll have a bit more of that, sir. Thank you. And and what a voice, man. Thank you so much, indeed. That's amazing. Thank.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: You. So don't forget, if you want Starship Silver ad-free, pop over to Patreon. Two, two dollars a month. We can get that, and the Red Dwarf's firing away there now. I'm doing the shows on Red Dwarf, and very, oh man, so close. I keep saying this, but the artwork's done and everything, so close for the Silverberg. We're going to do that in serial format as well, Silverberg. So pop over there, that would be fantastic. Support this good show. By God, I need it. Right then, Mr. Jim, G- like I see. Jim is on fire this month. Oh, don't rattle his cage if it's like wonky science. Greetings and leukoponic proteinias,
4: my auto-polemically listeners, and welcome to this November 2017 science news update. I'm your host for this lousy, stinky excuse for a science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Let's start off with the Idiot Scientist of the Month Award. The award goes to Dr. Josiah Zahner for using himself to experiment on, live on Facebook of all places. First, let's start off with who Zahner is. Josiah Zahner is the founder of Odin. What's Odin? Well, it's a company for biohackers. Quote, At Odin, we believe the future is going to be dominated by genetic engineering, and consumer genetic design will be a big part of that. We're making that happen by creating kits and tools that allow anyone to make unique and usable organisms at home, in the lab, or anywhere. In other words, Zayner is helping crazies and terrorists to make their dreams come true with inexpensive biotech kits. Thanks, Mr. Zayner. For your love of science and humanity. Zayner started biohacking while he was getting his PhD in molecular biophysics at the University of Chicago. Unfortunately, he seems to be one of the more infamous graduates of my alma mater. Anyway, he first created the chromochord in his apartment, the world's first musical instrument that uses engineered protein (laughs) tap... I can't even say this. It's the world's first musical instrument that uses engineered protein nanotechnology. Wow. Now, doesn't that sound useful, folks? Doesn't it? Really? Anyway, what has he done lately? Well, he's decided to kick gene editing into the mainstream. As I have mentioned previously to you guys, CRISPR-Cas is a cheap and easy technique for making precise changes to DNA genomes. And for the last year or two, it's gotten researchers around the world racing to use it in treating a host of human diseases. And yes, I've mentioned it over and over again over the last year or so. But this race is not confined to the lab. Last month, Josiah Zayner became the first person known to edit his own genes with CRISPR. Yes, Zayner became his own guinea pig. During a lecture about human genetic engineering that was streamed live on Facebook, Zahner whipped out a vial and a syringe, and then he injected himself. He injected himself apparently with a, a myostatin inhibitor in a CRISPR construct. Myostatin normally inhibits muscle growth. So by turning it off, he expects the arm that he injected it into will grow huge and muscular. Like those myostatin mutant dogs that you may have seen in news articles. Zayner says, This is the first time in history that we're no longer slaves to our genetics. Now, following in his footsteps, other biohackers are getting ready to take the plunge and tinker with their own genes. Because if your best friend jumps off a cliff, then you're going to follow him, of course. Especially if your friend is a dyed-in-the-wool idiot. Let's ignore the million different risks, like infection or inducing an autoimmune disease or, worst case scenario, inducing neomorphogenesis. That's cancer, folks. Let's just jump over that cliff, like the idiot sheeple that we appear to be. But to Zaner, whether or not the experiment actually works is beside the point. What he's trying to demonstrate, he says, is that cutting-edge biotechnology like CRISPR should be available for people to do as they wish and not be controlled by academics and pharmaceutical companies who think they know better. He says, I want to live in a world where people get drunk and instead of giving themselves tattoos, they're like, I'm drunk. I'm going to CRISPR myself. It sounds crazy, but I think, That would be a pretty interesting world to live in, for sure. Yes, and so would a world with killer robots and out-of-control zombies. But no one is cheering for a world like that, are they? Of course, such biotechnology is highly regulated in the U.S. and the U.K., but it's not illegal to edit your own DNA. Although it's not exactly legal, either. It's a gray area right now, according to the USDA, ladies and gentlemen. Worse, unfortunately, it's not clear to what extent, if any, Zayner is responsible for any harm that comes to people who copy him. It's a gray area that the FDA doesn't regulate. The FDA seems to have a lot of gray areas, doesn't it? Although apparently now they're becoming more interested in those gray areas as amateur scientists like Idiot Zayner disseminate their experiments and methods and their equipment online. Oh, one last comment on the idiot. Worst thing about Zaner's little stud is that it will do absolutely nothing for his muscles. Myostatin has most of its inhibitory effects when your muscles are actually growing when you're young. It's just kind of stupid to think that when your muscles are already developed and you're sitting there with mature muscles, that there is anything that you can do to make them bigger and stronger. Oh, that is unless you're actually exercising. A myostatin inhibitor is not going to suddenly turn you into the Hulk, or Thor, or even Spider-Man. It will likely do nothing, even if it's expressing at full levels in a mature human. Enough. Let's continue the evening with two astronomy stories which do not have scientists trying to commit slow suicide. First, it appears that a lot of assumptions have been made about rocky exoplanets that look like Earth. Earth. And it looks like a lot of those assumptions are wrong. Exoplanet astronomer Dr. Vincent van Aylen of Leiden University in the Netherlands and his colleagues have just published a study in the October 15th issue of the online journal Archive that says that Earth may not provide the best blueprint for how rocky planets are born. An analysis of planets outside the solar system suggests that most hot rocky exoplanets actually started out more like gassy Neptunes. Such planets are rocky now because their stars blew their thick atmospheres away, leaving nothing but that final inhospitable pore of metal. That could mean these planets are not representative of Earth, as scientists thought. And using them to estimate the frequency of potentially life-hosting worlds is kind of misleading. It turns out that one of the big discoveries is that Earth-sized likely... Rocky planets are incredibly common, at least on hotter orbits. I think the big question is, are these hot exoplanets telling us anything about the frequency of Earth-like planets? And that result suggests that they might not be, really. Observations so far suggest that worlds about Earth size probably cluster into two categories. Rocky super-Earths and gaseous mini-Neptunes. Super-Earths are between one and one and a half times as wide as Earth, whereas many neptunes are anywhere between two and a half to four times the Earth's size. Earlier work showed that there's a clear gap between those two planet sizes. Because planets that are close to their stars are easier for telescopes to see, most of the rocky super-Earths discovered so far have close-in orbits, with years lasting anywhere between two to a hundred days, and making the world's way too hot to host life as we know it. Because they are rocky like Earth, scientists include those worlds with their cooler brethren when estimating how many habitable planets might be out there. If hot super-Earths start out rocky, maybe it's because the worlds form later than their puffy mini-Neptune companions, when there's less gas left in the growing planetary system to build an atmosphere. Or, maybe, sort of opposite, such planets, along with many Neptunes, may start with thick atmospheres, and those rocky worlds may have had their atmospheres stripped away by the stellar winds, as I said earlier. Van Allen and his colleagues analyzed 117 planets whose host stars' sizes have been measured using astroseismology. Uh, that's a technique that tracks how often the star's brightness changes as interior oscillations ripple through it. And it uses that frequency to determine the size of the star. Van Allen says, quote, Think of stars as musical instruments. A double bass and a violin produce the sound the same way, but the pitch is very different because of the instrument's size. It's the same thing with stars. Unquote. The researchers then calculated the planet's size, between one and four times that of Earth, with about four times greater precision than in previous studies. As expected, the planets clustered in groups of around 1.5 to 2.5 times Earth's radius, leaving a gap in the middle. Finally, the team looked at how the planet's sizes changed with distance from the host star. Planets that were rocky from the start should be closer to the stars, where studies of other young star systems suggest that there should be less material available when those planets are forming. But if proximity to a star's winds is key, there should be some larger rocky worlds closer in, with smaller gaseous worlds farther out. Then aliens' planets match the second picture. The largest of the rocky planets nestled close to the stars were bigger than the distant ones. So that suggests that the rocky planets once had atmospheres and lost them. Our second astronomy story again points out just how ignorant we are of the universe. We seem to think that we know a lot. But, as a matter of fact, we're pretty dumb as lampposts when it comes to completely understanding the natural world. How ignorant are we? Well, apparently there are zombie supernovas out there. And you may well say, What you talking about, Willis? in response to that. Let's respond to that. A dying star was caught mid-nova in September 2014. That was not the end of it, though. Apparently, it still isn't done dying several years later. It has lasted ten times longer than any other supernova of its type that anyone has ever seen. Most supernovae brighten once they explode, and then they fade into obscurity. But supernova IPTF-14HLS has had at least five peaks in brightness since Dr. Ayer Arkavi of the University of California, Santa Barbara, and his colleagues began watching it. This work was just published this month in the journal Nature. Arcavi says, quote, It refused to go gentle into that good night. It has just kept on exploding and exploding. Evidence of at least one of the star's past explosions comes through in its light, which reveals a shell of material around the star, The light from IPTF-14HLS has a signature identical to common type 2P supernova, in which a massive star's core collapses and becomes a neutron star, with the resulting shockwave blowing away its hydrogen-rich outer layers. The bright flashes of these types of supernovas last about a 100 days before fading away. This supernova, however, seems to be acting a little like a Type 2P in slow motion. After 600 days of exploding, it looks like a Type 2P supernova after only 60 days. It's also radiating several times more energy than any Type 2P supernova that anyone has ever seen. Arkavi and his team are trying to find a mathematical model that fits the star behavior, but nothing has matched up yet. Arkavi seems to think that the most promising model to explain the zombie star is something called pulsational pair instability. And the way he explains it is this. The centers of very large stars, about 95 to 103 times the size of the sun, can reach over a billion degrees Celsius. At these temperatures, gamma rays in the core make pairs of electrons into their antimatter counterparts. Antimatter electrons are called positrons. Yes, positrons do exist. This is not something made up on Star Trek as a plot explanation. At any rate, the model further proposes that the radiation pressure from gamma rays stops a star from collapsing under gravity. When the rays turn into particles, the star begins to fall in on itself, igniting an explosion that can blow off the star's outer layer, but leave the rest intact to begin the process over again. Arkavi says, Quote, this could account for IPTF-14HLS's many explosions and for a possible pre-supernova eruption observed on the same spot in 1954. It would also result in multiple shells of expanding material like the one we've already seen, Unquote. But there's a catch. There's always a catch, isn't there? Arcavi says that even though pulsational pair instability is the best explanation for what they've seen, Supernova don't produce the amount of energy or the mix of elements observed in IPTF-14HLS. In short, the explosions are way too powerful to be explained away by his model. Arkavi finishes with, quote, Because the star has exploded several times, it may not even fit the definition of a supernova. You think of a supernova as a death of a star, and you think of death as something that only happens once. It's a very different kind of supernova that can die repeatedly. We may not even be close to correct by proposing the pulsational pair instability model, but right now, that is our best and only explanation for the phenomenon being observed. The next story is kind of a mix of astronomy and biology and ancient history. It turns out that the asteroid collision that may have doomed the dinosaurs 66 million years ago really stank, well, in more ways than one. Dr. Natalia Artemieva of the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson reports October 31st in Geophysical Research Letters that a new analysis of gases released from vaporized rocks at the impact site in modern-day Mexico suggests that the smash-up released up to three times more smelly climate-cooling sulfur than anyone previously believed. The Chicxulub impact spewed about 325 billion tons of sulfur and 425 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the air. This relatively modest release of CO2 might have contributed to long-term planetary warming, but the massive cloud of sulfurous gas would have more immediately blocked out the sun, researchers suggest, plunging the planet into a dark Narnia-style winter that was colder and longer than previously thought, and in which it was never Christmas. That can explain why so many of the Earth's plants and animals went extinct around that time, even those living nowhere near the impact crater. The new study suggests that the impact may have released around three times as much sulfur and much less carbon dioxide compared with previous estimates from maybe 20 years ago. The new calculations incorporate a better understanding of the meteor's angle of impact, the composition of the rocks, and how much gas would make it high enough into the atmosphere to influence climate. Next story. Indiana Jones, eat your heart out, man. We now have equipment that can see into ancient structures without triggering giant boulders trying to kill us. So this next story came out in the November 2nd issue of the journal Nature. Dr. Kurihiro Morishima of Nagoya University and his team used high tech devices, typically reserved for particle physics experiments, to peer through the thick stone of the largest pyramid in Egypt for traces of cosmic rays. And what did they find? Ooh, ah. They found a previously unknown empty space, which probably does not hold the Ark of the Covenant, but then again, Who knows? The mysterious cavity is the first major structure discovered inside the roughly 4,500-year-old Great Pyramid since the 19th century. Morishima says, quote, This is a significant historical finding, and even though there is currently no information about the role of this void, these findings show how modern particle physics can shed new light on the world's archaeological heritage. Unquote. The open space may comprise one or more rooms or corridors, but the particle detector images reveal only the rough size of the void, no detail of its design. Morishima and his group probe the Great Pyramid's interior with devices that sense muons. Muons, getting back to space and sounding like something else made up by Star Trek, are the byproducts of space-faring subatomic particles called cosmic rays, striking atoms in the atmosphere. Muons continuously rain down on the Earth at nearly the speed of light. But while the subatomic particles easily streak through open air, rock can absorb or deflect them. By placing detectors near the base and areas deep inside the Great Pyramid and measuring the number of muons that reach the detectors from different angles and directions, scientists could spot empty spaces inside the ancient edifice. For instance, if a detector inside the pyramid picked up slightly more muons from the north than the south, that would indicate that there was slightly less rock on the north side to intercept the incoming muons. That relative abundance of muons could indicate the presence of a chamber in that direction. The newly identified void was first seen with a type of muon detector called nuclear emulsion film, which Morishima's group laid out in a space called the Queen's Chamber, and the adjacent corridor inside the pyramid. When muons zip through these films, the particles' chemical interactions with the material leave silver trails that can reveal which direction the particles came from, a little like X-ray films work. Upon developing the films, the researchers saw a surprising excess of muons coming through a region above the Grand Gallery, a sloping corridor that runs north-south through the center of the pyramid. The cavity appears to be at least 30 meters across, which is about the size of the Grand Gallery itself, so we're not talking small here. Morishima and colleagues confirmed their discovery with observations from two other types of muon detectors that generate electrical signals when muons pass through them. Morishima says he hopes their findings will pave the way for muon imaging of other ancient monuments around the world, particularly at archaeological sites where traditional excavation may be difficult like deep in the jungle or on mountainsides. So our next story is Pure Biology, and it came from last month's Journal of Experimental Biology. It concerns those sad goldfish that people keep in ponds in their backyards. The poor things are usually left out all winter to fend for themselves, because that is what people have been doing since they started keeping koi thousands of years ago. Well, koi, the fancy name, or goldfish, the common name, are all the same species, which is carp. We should probably respect carp a bit more than this little song refrain suggests. Here's a little lyric by Robbie Schaefer to show you what I mean.
1: A carp is a fish that will eat anything just as long as that thing is edible. It will even eat things such as dirt, mud, and trash, and it thinks that these things taste incredible. A carp is a fish that will eat anything, and by now you must know what I mean. If you ever meet a carp and you take him to your house, make sure that he's really, really
4: clean. But, at any rate, carps deserve respect because they can do something lots of other organisms can't and that is recover from serious brain damage brought about by anoxia. At first glance, the elegant Crucian carp is capable of surviving for months without oxygen, emerging apparently unscathed from icy lakes and puddles at the end of winter when the sun returns. But Dr. Johnny Lefevre and her colleagues from the University of Oslo, Norway, weren't so sure. He wondered if this remarkable robust fish suffered brain damage as a result of oxygen deprivation and the subsequent return to oxygen. Intrigued by the possibility, Lefebvre went fishing in a small lake near Oslo to collect carp before exposing them to a mini-winter followed by spring in the lab by supplying them with deoxygenated water for one week before turning the air back on for a day. Checking for signs of cell death in the fish's brain, the team was impressed to see that the cell death rate was unaffected while no oxygen was available. However, as soon as the oxygen returned, the brain cell death rate more than doubled. And when the team checked to find out how the cells were dying, there was no evidence of the programmed form of cell death, apoptosis, that naturally tidies away defunct cells suggesting that the brain cells might be dying through other, more destructive or unconventional means. However, when the team tested for signs of cell growth one day after the oxygen returned, neither the fish in the oxygen-rich water nor those in the oxygen-poor water seemed to be rebuilding their brains, although the Favra points out that recovery may occur later. As the oxygen levels in the lakes vary naturally over the seasons, the team collected fish when the lake oxygen levels were highest in summer and early autumn and at their lowest in the late autumn and winter, and checked for signs of brain cell death. Interestingly, the winter fish showed relatively low levels of brain cell death, while the summer and early autumn fish were losing brain cells at a higher rate. Having discovered that the fish experienced serious levels of brain damage through cell death when the oxygen returns in the spring, the team tested how the damage affected the fish's memory. After training small groups of fish to navigate a maze in return for a food reward, the team plunged the fish into a brief simulated winter followed by a day of spring. Despite experiencing brain damage following the return of the oxygen, the fish were able to reach the food reward at the end of the maze as fast as they had before the simulated winter. However, their memories were poor and they did take wrong turns. When the scientists tested the ability of brain-damaged fish to learn how to navigate the maze, they found that the animals picked up the task quickly. LeFevre says, quote, they were able to repair any brain damage caused by anoxia and reoxygenation, unquote. All right, last story of the night. We can certainly quantify the fastest animals on Earth. But why are they the fastest? Why is the cheetah faster than a lion? That's not a question that we really ask very often. Well, Dr. Miriam Hurt from the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research and her team did ask that question, and they tried to answer it in the latest issue of the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Some animals that you would think would be faster than others simply aren't. Are there physical reasons for this? Hurt points out that if you ask somebody, why are cheetahs the fastest animals, you might receive some sort of quizzical looks and uncertain shoulder shrugs. And until recently, most scientists also felt that way. The largest animals should be able to move the fastest because they have more muscle to propel them at top speed, at least in theory. Why then are the largest animals, think elephants, outpaced by mid-sized animals like cheetahs? And this conundrum apparently doesn't just hold for land-running animals, but also for those that swim and fly. It appears that being mid-sized really is the sweet spot for moving fast. Kurt's team looked at whether the muscles that power movement may actually slow down the largest animals. The researchers focused on fast-twitch muscle fibers, which animals use when pulling off their fastest performance. Though this type of muscle helps speedsters, yes, also like the Flash, move quickly, fast-twitch fibers consume energy stores more quickly than they can be replaced, eventually leading to fatigue. The heavier an animal is, the longer it will take to reach its fastest speed, and the more energy it will require to reach that speed. Hurt and colleagues predicted that the biggest animals never reach their true top speed because they burn up their fuel supplies before attaining their fastest pace. Using the prediction that larger animals would tire out before hitting their potential top speed, the researchers modeled the maximum speed that animals could obtain based on their body mass and their mode of locomotion, that is, whether they traveled on land, in water, or in the air. Hertz's new muscle-based model was incredibly precise and predicted top speeds with about 90% accuracy in 474 different species that the team tested. Impressively, the model was accurate for animals on a huge differential scale, as small as a mite, which weighs 30 micrograms, to an animal as big as a blue whale, which is 108,000 kilograms. On land, underwater and in the air, Hurt and his colleagues' models show that mid-sized animals always outpace their larger counterparts. The researchers suggest that mid-sized animals have enough have the power to move fast but not so much that they're held back one really cool and exciting application for an all-encompassing muscle model like hertz is that researchers can use it to estimate speeds for long extinct species like wait for it yes dinosaurs how fast could they move well hurt using her model predicted the top speed for six different dinosaur species. The models show that a nimble, mid-sized velociraptor would have moved twice as fast as a massive Tyrannosaurus at their fastest paces. And that confirms the expectations of previous researchers who thought Tyrannosauruses might be a little slow. Hurt finishes with, quote, Our team's research also has exciting applications for currently living animals. It could be a valuable starting point for investigating why some animals differ from their model's prediction by being either faster or slower than expected. It will also help us to fine-tune the model and determine where our lack of understanding may lie. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't jump off that cliff with your friends. Watch out for zombie supernovas. If you're running away in your Jeep, remember, the Velociraptors will catch up with you, and the T-Rex won't. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you.
2: Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim! What can I say? Thank you so much! You know that because Jim's a great narrator as well, and he kind of twists with the voices, and I love it. Kind of just makes that the first section, that first little talk about that science, yeah, little bit <laughs> do <Dope-y> sounded, <laughs> Jim, little tinker. So that is today's show. Like I say, I hope you enjoyed it. Do pop over to Patreon and you know support. what it was just I keep harping on about it, but. We ain't getting any more money, just the people that kind of go over there and support one period. So that is fantastic. Until next week, just like you say, good night from me.
0: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
2: Yeah, I'm much,
0: I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm mooning, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly, It we'll won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I want to talk to you I want to talk to you (laughs) If I took some rocket ships ships. I'd be on my way get out of there